Welcome everybody to another workshop in the kiln. Today we are diving very deep into the world of world building. Specifically, Chris, our wonderful guest, has been preparing to talk about the kind of mass, what, maximalistic, mass, I don't know, side of things, like really just going in depth, building for its own sake, preparing a lot of stuff for us. So we're gonna be just enjoying a lot of stuff from, from Chris. And so I wanna give him as much time as, as he needs um, but one final note, I just want to thank everybody for jumping on board, supporting the ch the channel, the Kane's Kiln, with the Kofi stuff. It's been an exciting time in the in the community, and I really, really appreciate everybody's support and having you here. So that's enough said. Chris, let's uh, turn it over to you. What? Uh, where do you want to start? All right. Um, good morning, everybody. Um, so yeah, this is a this is a um, say a follow up to. Uh, Torn's original discussion about, you know, world building um, for like a, a game oriented experience. Um, this is a continuation with more of a, a, a deeper maximalist world building approach. Um, That's the one. I, I did um, want to keep this game oriented. Um, I'm not an author, so I, I don't really feel comfortable advising like world building for like storytelling so much. Um, so I just wanted to stay focused on a game, a game application, but most of this stuff should be applicable for hobbyist world building or even authorial world building, if that's your thing. Um, I'm not going to be covering today magic systems, levels of technology, governmental systems, but maybe we can do that in a future workshop. Absolutely. Um, also, D asked a really good question about how um, disability. Um, disfigurement visual differences are um I, I would love to cover that in another workshop as well but that is a that is a like a, a deep deep topic as well that i don't have time to cover today That's so okay. i'd like to start out with say again i was gonna say we have lots of time in the kiln overall maybe not this workshop but you're right we can always have more conversations yeah um and i think that would be a really good one to have uh just because it's something that is only starting to really uh be something that think people are thinking about in terms of their game um mm -hmm. so yeah let's hit that sometime um sure. so i'm starting like why why do we want to build and play in maximalist worlds um one i think it's a good lifelong hobby i mean ed greenwood started the forgotten realms when he was five years old and he's still working on it 58 years later um you know this this has been the formative piece of his life and i think that's really cool um also world building is like any other artistic discipline um you you get better by actually doing it you know there's the whole like ten thousand hours um maxim that i think david allen's said that i don't remember who um but each world that you build can almost be thought of as like a separate discipline. So, you know, world one could be like painting and world war or world two is sculpture, right? Each world is, is different enough that you can almost treat them as if they're their own separate skill sets, um, which I think is really cool. So Agreed. three, we want to provide a sophisticated backdrop for our games. Um, so campaigns, obviously, right? Like a long going session, but also, 
a campaign of campaigns. Um, this is a idea that I've been working on for a few years. But um, if you think of like Critical Role, like that's kind of a decent example where, you know, so far they, they've played three campaigns and there's some like overlap um, and there's reoccurring characters. Um, but that's not really where I'm going. Um, I think of it more almost like the Star Wars trilogy of trilogies. So like each trilogy is a campaign. And then each following trilogy was informed by the previous one. So each trilogy or each campaign features a different set of primary characters um, and they impact the others. The players can even be different um, and then discovering the previous campaign story and like consequences to the world can still be fun if you find a way to deliver that information in a way that feels natural. Um, and then also for one shots, so this might be the only time that a player experiences your world. But as the GM, you live and play in this world for dozens, possibly hundreds of sessions, right? So it it's like an ongoing story for you to experience yourself. Um, but even with, you know, with one shots, even if sessions are disconnected, if you have a, a, a deeper world, it still, it still feels like they have this connective tissue, um, which I think is really fun. And so as the, as your world grows, it creates a consistent framework on which to build your stories and campaigns. So as you play, you build up a collection of experiences and references. And I, I say a capital E, capital R, experiences and references. These are things that you internalize as you play. And over the months and the years of working on the same world, all of these experiences and references start to build up. And the way in which you deliver your world to your players, it starts to make everything feel a lot more textural and grounded. Um, so that is a benefit for the tone of your table. Um, also, the better you know your world, the more equipped you'll be to improvise. Um, it's impossible to know everything about your world. It's, it's just too big, right? Um, and it's impossible to anticipate um, what details your players are going to become interested in. And so working off these uh this like collection of experiences and references it makes your improv improvisation feel truthy if we want to steal a term from stephen colbert uh verisimilitude is another word but in this case i don't think it really works so i like the term truthy um and then so also were you gonna say something i just say i agree i like that word sorry yeah. <laughs> i'm listening <laughs> that's okay um and so then also, it empowers play in multiple eras that cross-reference each other historically. Um, so if you think about like the Elder Scrolls chronology, each of those games takes place 100 or 200 years apart from each other, yet they have this like connectivity between them that, make, that makes it all feel like it is contiguous, like it is one thing, even though the events are spread across multiple time periods. Um, so that that is sort of some of the whys. <clears throat> so 
our goal still remains. We want to have the most fun for the least amount of work. I think this is especially in the in the ICRPG Runehammer community. Most fun, least work is sort of like a guiding light for us. Um, so uh, our good friend CJRD4 said, one thing I'm struggling with when approaching my world is, how does it differ from say Middle-earth, Azeroth, or, Alexa or Alexandria? Aside from a different landmass, there's not really much different yet. It's mostly due to lack of time. I've drawn a map, but I haven't really dedicated time to sit down and think much about it beyond naming things. But I'd love to hear your thoughts on how you create something that's meaningful and different from what's been done. So I want to say that there's a distinction between just building spaces for adventure to happen and building a functional world. I think the first question you want to ask is if building a functional world is not the goal and just having a space to facilitate adventure is the goal, does it take more time to find and learn about a world somebody else made or to build what you need yourself? So we all have limited time. So answering this question super honestly is the key. Um, question two, do you want to build do you want to build something that is distinctive? If no, that's totally fine. Your players likely won't mind. But if yes, then we have to go. Then we have to like dig deeper. Um, so my my thoughts are kind of like, your world is not simply a generic space within your player characters sling one-liners and fight monsters. Your world is art. It's not like a world. It is your world. So it should be a reflection of your worldview and your interests, um, your takes on history and politics, and your thoughts about what kind of spaces are fun to explore. You're the only one that can make your world. The real question is if you're willing to kind of like expose your heart, right? Like art, that's what art is. Like it's sort of like digging in your body and your soul and putting it out there for people to see. Um, so I, I recommend using the free writing methodology, which I'm going to cover in a minute, um, to deconstruct all of your influences and ask yourself questions about what is important to you. Um, the magic will start to happen when you get down to the, like the real specifics um, of what makes your world tick, which usually means understanding the people rather than the geography. So I hope that answers your question. Um, so now I want to get into a little bit of methodology. So I just know, unless you are Tolkien, you're probably not Tolkien. Uh, conlangs are not practical for any of us, so I don't recommend inventing languages as an efficient method of world building. Um, but if you if you can, you're amazing. Um, so this methodology, it's not really like bottom up or top down. I kind of think of it as middle out. Um, so for high level world building, fast iteration is like really, is really critical. It's like burning through ideas as fast as possible. Writing words is cheap. Creating images is expensive. Uh, think about the, the amount of time it takes. Um, so I call this process recursive sketching. This process is about working in repeating cycles of a sketch-like writing process that gets more specific with each iteration. So 
I have a set of assertions here. Assertion one, there is no defined endpoint to this process other than the point at which you decided is good enough. Assertion two, drawing maps first will drain you of time and energy because you are trying to process more than raw ideas. Maps are, are a very complex organism. You have geography, you have um, points of interest, you have biomes, weather patterns, like, you know, all, all of these things. Where are the dungeons located? Where are the cities? You, you get you get really hung up on, a, on, on like layers and layers of information without actually developing a lot of strong ideas. Um, mind mapping first will also drain you of time and energy because you are trying to process more than raw ideas. Uh, mind maps, while a great tool, they actually use a lot of uh, mental cycles because you're constantly like managing what 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 should actually come next in the mind map like it's not it's not loose enough so you so you burn a lot of energy so i found um assertion four free writing is the most efficient tool you have for creating and working through ideas um so the best thing to do is grab some some something cheap not not your nice like gm's journal i recommend just like a legal pad something that that you're willing to just destroy and throw away but you want to start writing and then do not stop writing do not edit anything just like get your thoughts out um, it's kind of like that let the torrent flow idea and you want to get all the thoughts out onto the paper because you're not going to remember them later i don't know how many times like i've had a, like a really good idea either like in the shower or um you know, while I'm doing chores, because, you know, you've got that, like, pre-conscious mind going, and, and I'm like, oh, that was a good idea, and, you know, I'm going to get back to that later, and then I get back to it, like, 15 minutes later, and it's gone. Um, so, so definitely, like, write everything down, because you're not going to remember it. So I find that questions without answers are far more valuable than answers without questions. Questions are inherently generative. So if you're time constrained, focus on getting questions out as opposed to just writing details. Because even if you don't, if, even if the details aren't like front of mind, um, or if they are front of mind when you're writing, when you come back to that question later, you're gonna be able to come up with lots of answers. So the, the question ends up being more valuable. Um, don't waste energy on writing in a sophisticated manner. Nobody needs to read this except for you. So use as much shorthand as you can so that you're just working quickly. And then write for as long as your brain can churn out ideas on your topic. Set it aside and edit later when your mind is fresh. Um, you don't want to edit right after putting in like a marathon period of writing um you're you're, you're not going to do a good job it's going to take a lot of energy and you're going to end up being kind of lazy about it so edit when you're fresh and then just repeat this process until you're satisfied um hopefully as you as you repeat the process and edit more your ideas will start to grow in complexity but they'll reduce in the amount of language 
it, it's required to express them. So as you free write more and get more used to it, you'll you'll start to tap into that brevity. Um, brevity is key, but it's a muscle. You have to work it. Um, assertion five. So after you get done with this like free writing process, then mind map, but do it on butcher paper, something cheap. Don't don't like don't go to software. Um, only mind map things that require that type of visualization. Uh, this is about being like super fast and brief, not accurate. Um, the aesthetics of it only matter as long as they help you understand it later. And by aesthetics, I mean, does this thing go in a circle or a square or a triangle? You know, that kind of like if if you work in somewhere where you draw a lot of things on a whiteboard, you probably understand what I'm saying there. Um, and then obviously repeat this process until you're satisfied. Um, and then after we get done with that, like mind mapping um, that like cheap mind mapping. Then you can probably start thinking about writing for storage, which um, this is Notion, Obsidian, Google Docs, whatever you're comfortable with. Um, you're still not writing for publishing, so this writing is for is for you, not for other people. So don't worry so much about making it like super refined. Um, but this is the opportunity to clean up the writing, make it a little bit nicer. Um, you know, get get the details in, fix the grammar, don't go crazy. Um, and then if necessary and you start to go to publishing, then this is the time where you have to like, you know, if you're going to make handouts for players, like I consider publishing, you know, any time you're writing for other people to read, um, then you need to edit it, clean up that grammar, make sure it's written in a way that other people can understand it. Explanations should not be exhaustive, but should actually generate questions. You want your players, you want your viewers to want to ask questions. Um, so, so try to avoid the like, here is all the answer things. Um, so that's, that's the methodology. Like it is really a cycle of, of going from like very loose ideas to much more specific and you work cyclically until you get more and more and more specific. It is very difficult to be specific from the beginning. So I wouldn't even, I wouldn't even try it. I just, I go very high level and I, and I work in these like concentric circles and get more and more specific. And I think of it as sketching. It's just sketching with words. All right. Now I have nine what I call axioms. These are what I think of as like truths um, that are just kind of a guidepost for me. Axiom number one, your world does not need to be complete before you use it. So you just, just get in there. Okay. Whether you're, whether you're telling stories, playing in games, whatever whatever you're doing with it don't feel like you need to have it finished before you get in there that is the best way to like burn out and just end up not doing it um so also the stories and the games will help you build the world we all know this um but during your campaigns 
if you find like retcon opportunities, retcon very strategically during the game. You don't want to sort of like break the immersion. You want to um, make things feel cleaner. But between campaigns, retcon liberally. Um, don't be afraid to uh, even, you know, if your players are coming back for another campaign and you make huge changes, just let them know, like, things may be a little bit different. Maybe you can explain it away as, you know, a broadening understanding of the world, whatever you can find reasons. But don't be afraid to make huge retcons. It's totally fine. Okay. Axiom number two might be the most important one for me. Build your world to generate conflict. Without conflict, there's no story. So, humanoid settlements in close proximity should always be competing for resources. Um, there should always be tension and a reason reason for those settlements to, um, like, maybe not be ready to go to war at any time, but there should always be some kind of tension. Quote, unquote, monsters, they're not just dangerous threats. They should also compete for resources and also be cultural competitors. Um, so while, while you're wor working on your world, don't just think about what the elves and the dwarves and the humans and the halflings do. You should also, also be thinking about what are the goblins doing? You know, what are the orcs doing? Um, they have complex cultures as well, and they need the same resources that the other people need. Um, and you should think about this with all, all of your, all of the like tentpole monsters, the, the, the monsters that you use a lot should, should have a meaningful footprint in your world. Um, and then just every detail of your world should be an opportunity for conflict. It doesn't necessarily have to be war or combat. It can be trade conflict, you know, it can be just competition for resources. Um, sitting at a negotiation table is is a form of is a form of conflict. Um, and so, you know, close uh, settlements in close proximity or nations, um, you know, they, they're going to have, they're going to have conflicting priorities. And the best way to resolve those conflicts might be to get them to a negotiation table. And once they're at the negotiation table, that's an opportunity for all kinds of crazy stuff to happen. Political intrigue, assassinations, that kind of thing. Okay. Axiom number three, the map is a lie. Um, this is uh, prompted by our friend Mirage. Um, mapping, this is controversial, maybe. Mapping does not equal world building. So, um, very often cited is this uh, quote by Tolkien. He said he wisely started with a map. He said this in a letter to a colleague um, who asked him about, uh, about how he handled... Um, I believe it was like the travel of um, his characters, and so he said he wisely started with a map. Um, and this 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 statement is used to justify 
beginning world building with making a map. But this didn't actually happen. Um, he was actually writing already, and then he would draw smaller regional maps to sort of help him wrap his head around the travel and like the distances. Um, but he did not he did not draw the whole Middle Earth map before he started writing Lord of the Rings. Um, map Crow did a really good video on this pretty recently. Um, it, it's definitely worth watching. So, secondly, the map does not inherently generate conflict. Um, a map is just geography. Um, so, maps are the result of good world building, not the catalyst for it. So maps require a lot of work, a lot more work than writing. And once you've reached a point where you've, where you've made so much progress, um, you will not be willing to undo large amounts of work um, to make changes. So you'll start making concessions about interesting world building for the sake of conforming to that map. Um, this is kind of a terrible anti-pattern that can lead to a lot of um, bad uh bad habits um, where where you end up dissatisfying down the road because you locked yourself too much into a specific image. Um, so also don't introduce a finished map until uh, uh, don't introduce a finished map to players before you're willing for that to be permanent um, because once you lock that in it can be difficult to go back and change it. Um, so I'll make a concession though like Sometimes the discovery approach to generate in a landmass and then filling in interesting details, um, you know, created by the weird squiggles you draw can be fun. Um, but I think it lacks the specific that drives conflict between characters in a story. So if you do find yourself leaning towards making maps, try to do it in a way that is like small. Don't go draw a continent. Maybe sketch in some mountains or something and use that to generate conflict. Um, axiom number four, build your world out of people. So if you build people first or inhabitants first, not geography first, um, I, I think you'll find those, um, conf that, that conflict comes more naturally. Um, so what you can do is make some people and build them a little community. You'll do this in the free writing process. Give them food and shelter, give them professions, elect their leaders, you know, turn, build a, a, a roughly self-sufficient community out of them, and then take something away from them and see how they respond. Um, maybe you take away an important food source. Maybe you take away their, their main leader. Whatever it happens to be, take it away and then work through how they respond to that. Build their world and their culture around how they respond to their struggles. Um, this iterative process um, should happen in the free writing phase, but you can scale it up or down to your needs. So it can go from a tribe of people, it can go, or, or just like a caravan of travelers, all the way up to nations. Um, it's just a matter of how you scale it. So then axiom number five, world build organization 
world build organizations like the John Wick movies do it. So the criminal underworld of John Wick is revealed one layer at a time through very restrained use of props, dialogue, and actions and consequences. Um, organizations and factions, they love rules. They love little tokens, symbolic social interactions, like secret handshakes and stuff. Um, and rituals that reinforce their values and their internal mythologies. So show these things, but do not explain them. Even players who are part of the organization. Players are like a movie audience. As we go through the John Wick movies, we identify as, as John Wick as the protagonist. But while he knows what the tokens and the rituals are, neither he nor a film narrator explains them. The audience gets to feel the satisfaction of discovering the rules of this criminal underworld as John Wick navigates them by doing the things. Um, uh, one example is like the gold coins. You first see them when he like digs up his basement and then you don't see it again until he actually uses them. Nobody talks about them. You just see them being used. Um, so a good way to do this is illustrate the 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 tokens and the rituals by having the um, NPCs use them first um, and then allow the players to start using them. And you just want to gently guide them. Um, this feeling of like immersion um, really will uh, uh, reinforce the sort of like solidity of your world. Um, so you want to make it accessible, avoid the complexity, um, but make it layered so there's like a feeling of constant revelation that makes this organization's history feel deep. Um, so as an example in my own world, um, I have an organization called the Black Helix. They're kind of a, a criminal organization in a city called Charlemagne Bay. Um, they use they use user-specific enchanted membership cards that grant temporary or permanent access according to the user's rank. But when the user either loses the card or it is taken from, taken from them, all of the memories associated with the Black Helix are scrambled or erased. Um, so even the founder of the organization has to have like his membership card on him at all times, um, or he will forget the organization. So that is a, a good way um, for the Black Helix. They can hire contractors when necessary, and it protects them from people who leave the organization because it makes it very difficult for the authorities to uh, investigate. Um, so I, I had players in a game uh, a couple years ago that were working with the Black Helix, and they were constantly like, they would get hired for a job and they would remember all the things and then they would lose their card and then they would forget, but they had these like foggy intuitions. Um, and they kept meeting, they kept meeting the same handler over and over and they never remembered who he was. And the players obviously remembered who he was, but um, the characters didn't. And so it was really fun to like constantly give them information and then take, take it away from them. Um, it was very cool. So axiom number six, develop your themes. So one of the best way to differentiate 
areas or groups of nearly any size in a campaign world is to choose a theme for each area or group and then drill down on like every concept within that theme. Um, this concept works at nearly every level of scale from planets all the way down to tribes. So consider like Star Wars planets or the Elder Scrolls games. Um, you know, it's like uh, in Star Wars, every planet is it has one environment and there may be only one town on this planet but they kind of refer to it as their planet um so these planets must be really small but um what star wars does really effectively is to just like drill into a theme in an area and just like get everything out of it so do the same um, or the elder scrolls games you know skyrim is like the frozen north and uh, you know, they just wring everything they can out of that one theme. Um, so my old, my own campaign world is a collection of continents. Um, it's it's based on Earth. I, I think I've talked about this before. Um, and they each function as like a distinct campaign setting. Um, so I think of my world as sort of like a, a setting of settings, if you will. Um, each continent relies on a very broad theme and then I try to explore them as thoroughly as possible um, just by going deep, um, as, as deep as I can into every like sub idea within the theme. So um, one of my contents focuses on difficult to explore terrain that hides a lot of mysteries um, for which the, the, the few inhabitants, it's a, it's a fairly sparsely uh, populated area. But the inhabitants have like lots of like myths and legends and superstition and there's rumors of treasure um, um but there's also uh a lot of you know myths about how you know if you if you cross this area that the the area on the other side there's you know flesh-eating diseases and the cities are poisoned and will kill you if you live there you know like everything feels like overly mysterious um, and then another continent focuses on nations that coexist among plentiful resources, but they have strong differences in how they interpret religions and how they tolerate the use of magic. And so that is much more of the like, you know, political, uh, political tension kind of area. So by leaning heavily into specific themes, it becomes much easier to decide where certain types of campaigns will be more intuitive to run. Um, it's better to create d distinctive themed areas and run campaigns appropriate to those areas than it is to try to like build like one thing that has everything in it. That kitchen sink can be really hard to manage. Um, so axiom number seven, leave space for big revelations that you haven't planned yet. So um, think like mythos fiction, you know, like Lovecraftian stuff. Um, you can't plan for an entire world's worth of big revelations prior to telling your stories. So um, big revelations, they shouldn't contradict each other, uh, but they should support and build it on each other where possible. Um, your players do not need to know about all of the big revelations. So I'm thinking in, in, in subsequent campaigns, you don't have to reveal all of the things from the previous campaigns. Um, but you want them to have this feeling 
that reality is much bigger than their limited view can kind of comprehend. So, um, so you want to you want to be able to make a huge revelation like the world is made of hot fudge, um, but but you don't have to know all of them. But when you when you come up with more of them later, you should try to like make them kind of fit together. So the world is made of hot fudge, but the clouds are made of marshmallow fluff. I don't know. Um, axiom number eight, know the geometry of your world. This one is a little bit heavier. So in film criticism, a common aspect of action scenes uh, that is discussed is the geometry or the geography of the scene, which refers to both the elements of the scene as well as the physical space in which the action takes place. So if the geometry of the scene is well-defined beforehand, the audience can more easily track where the action is occurring and can anticipate where the action is going. Consider the all-time classic action masterpiece, Home Alone. In the beginning of the film, the camera moves throughout the space um, of the house multiple times so that the audience is ready to track the action as it unfolds in the third act. But in the case of world building, the you that is actively running the game right now is the audience, while the you that is working on building the world is the filmmaker. The geometry is the relationships between either the physical elements of your world or the social elements of your own world. So you want to think in triangles that scale up. Uh, triangles are very are a very stable shape, um, and I, it makes it easy to to kind of create interesting conflict, and then um, and then remember them. So um, a piece of physical geometry is every individual is connected to an organization which is then tied to a settlement. So you have an individual, an organization, and a settlement. Pretty simple triangle. Um, another physical one, every organization is connected to a settlement, which is then connected to local geography. Um, every settlement is connected to a trade hub, which is connected to regional geography. Um, so these are three different scales or levels of physical triangles that are really easy to sort of like organize and keep top of mind. So a social triangle, every individual is connected to at least two other individuals that have competing priorities. So if you're working at the town level, you know, maybe you have uh, the, the like quote unquote mayor, the leader of a town, and then you have his political rival and then you have either the mayor or the political rival's um, partner. And those three people can be connected in interesting ways that can lead to a lot of conflict that's easy to remember because you created this very um, stable triangle. Um, so actually, I some examples from my own world of social triangles. So the democratic government of Charlemagne Bay is being infiltrated and manipulated by a powerful trade consortium, while pro-government agents in the Black Helix um, Guild are trying to infiltrate the trade consortium. So I have, I have a triangle between the government of the city, 
this trade consortium, which is really kind of like fantasy Walmart and um, the Black Helix, the this criminal organization. Um, so social triangle number two, uh, while the while the democratic government of Charlemagne Bay is being infiltrated and manipulated by a powerful trade consortium, the pro-democracy secret society, the Alabaster Quill, is spreading propaganda among the citizenry with the goal of driving boycotts of the trade consortium. So you have these two triangles. The common line between the two triangles is that the government of this city is being infiltrated by a trade consortium. But then the the other uh, lines that lead to the like opposing points on, on one triangle is the Black Helix doing their thing and on the other side is the Alabaster Quill doing their other thing. So I have two triangles that are sort of anchored by the same base um, and it makes it much easier for me to just keep that conflict top of mind. Um, and examples of this can really go on forever. This is an idea that is intended to scale up infinitely. Um, these triangles can become a, uh, a mnemonic device that you use to recall things like at the table while you're actively working. Um, they're really valuable. Um, and this can even go up, I mean, this can go into geography, this can go into weather patterns. It's really about just just understanding how things are connected and, and doing it in a simple way that is logical. And then axiom number nine, revel in the unknown. Um, you can't know everything about your world, so don't worry about it. Um, you get to decide how many gaps there are and how big they are. You can decide how little you want to know about your world. It's all valid. Um, the unknown is an opportunity to improvise or experiment with campaign-specific content. Um, so I say leave, leave a lot of gaps. You can fill that in later with gameplay, you know, with active use. Um, so now I have a, a set of topics here. Um, Topic one, settlements, resources, and logistics, uh, you know, geopolitics, that kind of stuff. Um, even the smallest podunk, podunk town exists for a reason, and that reason should promote conflict. So a town should exist because it's there to exploit a natural resource or because it has particularly fertile farmland. Maybe it's like a strategic military um, placement. Maybe it sits at the convergence of a bunch of trade routes. Um, and also proximity to natural wonders or like a site of religious significance is also a really good place to put a city. Nearby settlements should either be dependent on or covetous of other settlements. They want the other settlements resources or they're jealous of their placement or they're dependent on trade. So like capital cities, often fall at the convergence of trade routes, which makes them large and wealthy, but they also become dangerously dependent on trade because they often don't produce anything that can be traded themselves. Um, so rival settlements will try to siphon the trade from the capital city, um, which then leads to all kinds of um, political conflict. Most settlements should be multiple generations old. Um, so it should be difficult to alter the status quo um, 
but that's always something that is like happening like people are always trying to change things which which also leads to a lot of internal conflict um so a subtopic here exotic materials consider how exotic materials can be used to explain how weapon enchantment works um, or to differentiate like legendary weapons and armor um, so some examples like adamantium valerian steel or duranium settlements that produce these kinds of materials should have amplified conflicts of all fronts because uh, people want these materials especially like bad guys um, many different kind of organizations are going to be working in secret to obtain these materials which you know means story hooks um, so trade and travel um, trade uh, trade is really important understanding trade relationships can help contextualize the tensions and partnerships between settlements and nations um, trade between settlements and nations is always motivated there's always like a reason that they want to do this it just doesn't happen um, trade happens because different regions have deficits that they can't fulfill from the interior or they have surpluses that they can capitalize on despite the outward appearance of typical import export behavior there's usually some level of espionage and statecraft happening in the background um, governments and criminal organizations um, organizations of any size will try to get their hand into trade agreements which leads to conflict um, so then travel consider the necessary infrastructure for travel how difficult do you want travel to be the harder travel is the more differentiated cultures become at a distance the more difficult travel is, the more exotic and expensive things from further away become. And the harder travel is, the more prominent stories become of the strangeness of far off lands. Um, if travel in your world is extremely difficult, something that's only 20 miles away might feel like another world. And there might be all kinds of stories about how dangerous it is, or maybe the streets are paved with gold. Um, you know, those kinds of things. Um, so then Torn asked, how realistic do you try to make logistics? Um, logistics are the methods and infrastructure through which resources and goods travel. So think the trucking industry in the United States. Um, so realism versus pragmatism. Um, realistic can be a loaded term that implies an impractical level of detail. So I kind of try to stay away from it. Um, your your goal is very similitude, not slavery to inflexible detail. A pragmatic approach is to make note of things that you know are important, but leave the specifics for the time that you actually interact with them. That way you can save brain cycles. Um, these things can be invisible until the game requires them to be interacted with, unless there is something like so significant that it becomes a major aspect of your world building. So for example, say there is a train that runs weekly between Dry Gorge and Long, and, and Long Bluff, which carries a shipment of gold, silver, and dark iron. Every gang in the valley has ambitions to rob it, but it is heavily guarded by brutes who shoot first and don't ask questions. So this train is a very specific infrastructural detail. The reason it is it exists is because it is inherently an adventure hook. If you just know that that a, a caravan of wagons 
or you know trade caravans just takes resources back and forth you don't need to write that down um, that's just something you kind of know um, so then another topic culture uh, Torn asked another how much cultural detail do you add so at a minimum um, I follow the advice of the creating cultures episode of the RPG mainframe um, I try to have a greeting their trigger custom the core values and their visual cue just as at the base um, but then I also add their basic form of governance um, you know I, I want to know like how does society decide to handle the business of running the society it doesn't have to be super detailed but i want to have like a really basic idea um so culture is the result of the things that people within that culture do not the cause um culture has to be established through the behavior before it becomes enforced through expectation so first you want to add cultural detail that will justify logical conflict. So like Vulcans in Star Trek, their adherence to logic really only exists to drive conflict with emotional species. Klingons are obsessed with honor to justify getting into fights with those who they believe disregard honor. Um, second, Add cultural detail that was developed as a result of the environment that the culture lives within. If you live in a rainforest, knowing which plants are medicinal and which animals slash insects are venomous is culturally very important. If you live in a desert, knowing where and how you can find potable water becomes a cultural cornerstone. Um, and then third, take the survival details from the environmental influences and figure out how the people will use it to create art. This is a lot. This is a lot lower level. Um, so it might take you several cycles before you get here. So this may not need to be like, you know, priority number one. But art is a very specific cultural marker that can really make a culture feel deep. Um, so if you, if you, establish the um the cultural details that uh justify conflict and then their en environmental details and then the art details those three things will make a culture feel incredibly detailed um and you can get it just like a ton of mileage uh, i recommend doing a ton of research on real earth cultures and just stealing and remixing ideas like crazy um, so the topic of naming things, how do you decide to source the names is up to you. Um, Google Translate, name generators, just raw creativity. Um, so there are two, two ideas, endonyms and exonyms. So an endonym is the name bestowed um, on a place by the people who live there. Exonyms are names bestowed on a place by the people who live outside of it. Um, Base your source names on geography, people, or history, and then iterate on those names using a couple techniques. So um, you can express people simplifying names by removing extra modifying words, um, or you can even add modifying words um, for, for places that have similar names. So maybe you name things that are very, very similar, but then you add words to them to differentiate them. Um, 
places located near the political borders also might incorporate terms from other nations. So maybe, you know, you think of the area between France and Germany where there's this like shared culture. You have names of places in France that are very German and um, I don't I don't know about it in Germany. I don't know if they let any place sound like France, but that border is sort of porous. Um, so names aren't just about the place history of the people, but also about who gets to choose the name. So if you think about um, Constantinople, um, was named Constantinople for a long time. And then after a major religious change, they changed the name to Istanbul. Um, so, you know, find opportunities to like change the name of a place because the religion changed or because maybe it was absorbed by a nation. So we're about out of time here. Um, I had two more topics on historical events and um, stories and gods and religions. So I'm going to skip the historical stuff. I might just post that, but I want to go over religions real quick. Um, so religion is really complicated um, and that it's, it's a huge topic. Um, I think the main thing you want to keep in mind, and I'm going to simplify this a little bit, is um, three levels of power. So you have Parpotestis, which is where all of the powers of the deities are roughly equivalent. So this is kind of how the Dawn War pantheon works. And then you have Ordopotestis, which is where they are in a, like an ordered tier of power levels. This is kind of more how the Forgotten Realms works, where you have different levels of gods. And then you have the concept of Mythopia, which um, this is a storytelling technique where um, the god's power is determined by the number of people that worship them. So if if in your world the god's power level will change, um, it can change the tiers of power levels. This can lead to a lot of really good conflict. <clears throat> the main thing, I recommend actually building your followers before you build your gods it's a lot easier to divine to define people and determine what their motivations are and then shape your gods from that rather than building a pantheon of gods first and making the people conform to that um i have a lot more on that and i'll probably post it i also have a um what i call the agile world waterfall will world building cycle it's a document um that I will also share with the group. Um, but we are five minutes to the hour, so I think I will stop talking. Um, thanks. No, you're good. Thank you. That was incredible, Chris. Um, you came prepared and loved it. That <laughs> That is really helpful. So, I don't know. I... I just love a lot of the stuff that you brought up. They are so applicable and I think they are really actionable axioms uh, and the other word is what is it? Assertions. Assertions. So I really, yeah, I really appreciate that you made these very actionable. I think can really benefit all of us in some way at some level with our games and how we're, how we're using them. So way to, way to go. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. I know it's probably, I, I realized I was talking really fast and we didn't even get through all of it. Um, I kind of went a little nuts. 
Um, I will try to condense these notes down to something um, that is uh, more manageable and less uh, stream of consciousness, and then I'll, I'll put those out somewhere where the group can access them. Greatly appreciate that would be yeah that'd be great. Well, everybody, I I just want to say again thank you, Chris, for your presentation talking about this, um, and thank you everyone for for tuning in. We'll have this up so that you can re-listen and, and continue learning about this. This is a great subject and talk uh, that we can just continue discussing on the kiln and, and everywhere else. Um, but for now, I think we're going to head back to the kiln as always. Keep working on our projects. Please continue sharing them. If you have more discussions, please reach out, chat, talk, share, the whole shebang. And we'll look forward to the next workshop uh, coming up in a couple weeks. So thanks again, everybody. Thank you.